Welcome to Tennis with an Accent podcast. I am Matt Zemek with Saqib Ali. And at this time of year, it is uh, one of those weird uh, nuances of the tennis calendar that after the end of grass season, we actually go back, at least for part of the tour, not to hard course just yet, but to post-Wimbledon clay in Europe. And uh, a few players play it because they're really good on clay and they see the easy opportunity to pick up points. But that that uh, very legitimate need is balanced against uh, rest and recuperation and also preparation time for hard courts and the U.S. Open. And it's worth mentioning that, you know, a year ago, Dominic Team played post-Wimbledon clay. And I will be the first to admit that I thought this was bad preparation for the U.S. Open, and while it didn't exactly help team uh, in the hardcourt lead-up events before the U.S. Open, uh, it certainly didn't hurt him when he got to New York. He was able to make the U.S. Open quarterfinals, and he played that epic match against Rafael Nadal. So as I turn to you, Sakib, uh, you know, there are different players who have made some adjustments uh, on their uh post-Wimbledon schedule relative to clay and then swinging back into North American hardcourts. Players have taken various approaches, and obviously in um, Washington, D.C., with the hardcourt event there, um, Alexander Zverev has chosen not to play Washington uh, after doing extremely well at the event in previous years. So let's, let's start there. With Zverev choosing not to play Washington this time, what what is your reaction to that particular decision? I think uh, the way Zverev's year has gone, he's entered a uh, few tournaments, uh, Geneva being one where he won, you know, in a third set tiebreak against Nicolas Jari in a close match. So we we don't know like what's uh, you know Zverev's decision and mindset is, but I think yeah, you. And a lot of tennis uh, writers who believe that uh, Zverev and some of the younger generation should base themselves uh, along the likes of, you know, the big three in scheduling. So maybe that's the original thought of doing that uh, because he always, I think, has a connection to play Hamburg, which is in his country. But that's the biggest tournament Germany has is 500. But this tournament is, you know, played after Wimbledon. And uh, uh, I, I don't know if that was uh, part of the consideration or maybe he just wanted to go in Montreal more fresh, maybe that's the Lendl effect, you know, like peak at the bigger tournaments. He's had good success over the years with the small tournaments, uh, small as in like the single week, uh, you know, one week tournaments. So, but I think in the broader question, uh, I would just like to add something what you said. It's very important, like the need has to be balanced, but even the Newport tournament, you know, which due to uh, the climate in North America, you know, because the grass is not ready, as Todd Martin told us last year, that's why the tournament is held after Wimbledon. So. Uh, you know, Adrian Manorino, Misha Zverev, Vashik Paspasil, Rajiv Ram when he was active in singles. Uh, you know, Leander Pace still gets in top because, you know, like players get the preference. They have to make the points. They have to make the, you know, whatever, you know, of course, these guys, some of these guys in the top 100 are well taken care of financially, but it's all about the points. So I think that's what a Fonini does. I know we have a slight fundamental disagreement there. Uh, and you are right because if Fanini has to prove himself, I totally respect that. But a lot of times it's also like, you know, let's stay in the continent because a lot of these tournaments are close by in the continent of Europe. You lose first round, you can still go back to your home. Uh, I mean, I'm just talking more generic. Maybe players don't do that. And uh, yeah, I think it's uh, even at the professional level, sometimes 
I, I can't speak for you because, you know, you are pretty objective, but I think as much as I follow tennis, sometimes we do underscore, uh, folks like myself, we do underscore the possibility and the real meaning behind ranking points because Murta Tunga, who's our good buddy, and he does do part-time coaching on the WTA, and he was telling me the other day, he was, uh, you know, WhatsApping, we were going back and forth, and he said his player is so huge, if she wins the next match, it's 20 points. And of course, she's trying to break into the top 100, that's a different league but at the same time points are points and I think even if you're Fonini or even my one of my favorite fall players Ernest Gulbis who probably is going to be back in the 200s and you know another doldrum uh, he's also entered three tournaments after uh, Wimbledon on clay in Europe because that's his last chance because he's still using the pre-Wimbledon ranking and he's entered those tournaments uh, to you know to play well and to accumulate some points so I think it's 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 not as simple uh, that's what I think Uh, Not to discount, you know, your notion because you're coming from, you know, a very objective point of view, how the sport should be viewed for the top athletes. Uh, So I think that's what my addition is. And it's where you don't know exactly, you know, what triggered this decision. Well, you know, I I have certainly gone on record as saying that if you fancy yourself as a top player and by top player, I mean that you're a contender for major championships or that at least you have the level of ability that can make a deep run at major championships, you should be aligning your schedule such that you can reasonably compete for major championships. And so I think that Alexander Zverev not playing Washington, the 500, uh, so that he can be more primed for the two Masters 1000s in Canada and Cincinnati, you know, that is a mature scheduling decision. And I think that that is a, it's a pathway and it's a it's a way of being which is consistent with what a major title contender should be. Now we can all discuss Zverev's t- tennis itself, but that's really in a separate box. In terms of a- adjusting and arranging your schedule to put yourself in position to compete for the biggest trophies, you know that 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 is a mature decision. I, well, there's one other point I want to make on this, something that I didn't make last year when I talked about team playing Hamburg. And Zverev, you know, he played Washington last year, and you know, I remarked on that decision. What I didn't say last year, and I'm going to say this year, in terms of the decision to play post Wimbledon clay, if you're an elite player, and I, and by the way, I have absolutely no argument at all with a lower ranked player playing post Wimbledon clay, because you're not in position to contend for big trophies. You do need to lift your your ranking points and your standing so that you can qualify for main draws you know at the majors at masters 1000s you know you do need those points whenever and wherever you can get them you know if you are further down the food chain but getting back to the elite players such as fanini playing post wimbledon clay such as team playing hamburg in in the summer on clay I think a a key dimension that I've neglected to mention in the past is that if you're going to play these events, which aren't super high stakes events, and but they represent time and commitment and effort for you as a tennis player, get something out of them. And by that, I mean not points, but find something new tactically or some other aspect of your game that you can work on so that you have a newer or a better weapon when you get to the bigger tournaments, such as the Masters 1000s in Canada and Cincy, and then the U.S. Open itself. You know, if you have a shot that has not been as fully developed as you would like, if you're, there is a playing pattern 
that uh, Coach Nicolas Massou wants Dominic team to work on, okay, Hamburg is where you need to be sure to play that pattern, uh, to use and implement that particular strategy so that when you do get to the bigger events, that time spent in Hamburg at some of these out-of-the-way places on the tennis tour, it, it will have extra value because it will have developed your game. It will have led to something bigger. Don't just play normal tennis the way you've always played it. Obviously, you do have to you know, win matches if you're going to bother to play tournaments, but do consciously try to add something to your game uh, if you're going to play smaller tournaments and, and make this extra investment. That's the extra point I want to emphasize here. I'd like to add a couple of points. I think it's a good discussion, and I would respectfully disagree a little bit. Uh, not because, you know, I think where you're going with this is not objective. I think it's very fair how to assess a top player like team who's like a legit contender, I believe, everywhere. Uh, so I think there's, you know, these appearance fee bucket, which players don't talk about, but I think a lot of times Hamburg probably has landed team as the biggest name. So his management company worked with them. So I think it's his professional responsibility to go out and give it a performance and win. And it's proven in the past, you and me have been proven slightly wrong by team when we were critical of his, you know, post Wimbledon clay activities that he had his best US Open. Uh, and. And secondly, I think, uh, would you hold it against uh, Fabio Fonini if he suppose racks up 750 points? And in the, in the meantime, he's only missing, you know, Atlanta, uh, Newport less discount, Atlanta and maybe Washington. And then he's an outside contender to qualify for London because, you know, Thomas Muster made a living on clay and, you know, nobody really shortchanges his career. So why do we have different rules, Matt? Uh, not you, but overall in the era of Federer and Nadal, why do we have to hold everyone accountable to the same same yardstick. If team can, you know, make his career progress, sorry, not team, Fonini, and if he can give himself another chance at the age of 32 to be within sniffing distance of the London tournament, uh, I don't think we should be holding it against him as long as he's not skipping Cincinnati and Montreal. Well, you know, if we're going to talk about the difference between Fonini and Mooster, I mean, I think we could all agree that Mooster got a lot more out of his game than Fonini did, especially on clay. And so the reason why I harp on Fanini's decisions is, you know, the main thing is his inconsistency. If he was more consistent, if he showed he could carry his level of form from one surface to another, from one tournament one week to the next, then his decision to go off-road, so to speak, to take this post-Wimbledon clay detour that he loves so much, then it wouldn't be as much of a problem because he would be able to prove that he could take what he does on clay after Wimbledon and transfer it to the North American hardcourts. But of course, that doesn't happen. So it's a pattern we've seen over and over again in Fanini's career that he'll have these brief bursts, but he, they won't be sustained very long. If they had been sustained, then this whole notion of going out of your way to play these smaller post-Wimbledon clay events, it wouldn't be a problem because he could then carry that into North American hard courts. He doesn't, though. And so in many ways, it's not necessarily the, the decision itself, but the, the historical pattern of results, which, which is the real indictment of Fanini. And he's, he's looking at this pattern from the past decade or so, and he's not willing to change it. He is a victim of George Santayana's 
famous words about history, doing something over and over again, uh, you know, expecting the same results. Those who are, uh, you, know, you know, unwilling to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So that that is a fuller critique of Fabio Fanini's post-Wimbledon clay scheduling decision. So, yeah, let's uh, not try to harp on this, but I think we seldom have disagreements here and hopefully I can add, you know, a meaningful response and maybe you can explain further. So are we saying it's the person, you know, and his overall trajectory that we have an objection with if, uh, say, a Felix Mentia in the past or, you know, a less decorated clay court player than Thomas Muster or Albert Costa? And I believe a lot of Europeans have done that. Roger Federer did play start after winning Wimbledon. Nadal has played, you know, this uh, part of clay a couple of times, if not more. So, so are we just saying because Fonini doesn't bring the same intensity? Of course he doesn't. He's not Bautista good. I think everyone is wired differently. But I think if Fonini is accumulating points and he's getting the wins because he's pretty popular with fans. So I think uh, I still see your point. I'm not fully against it, but I, I'm failing to understand why, why are we having different rules for Fonini and Mooster? You know, it's, it's a pro tour. And Nadal always says they should be clay at the year-end championship. So if there is clay after Wimbledon for three more weeks... And these big markets in Sweden, uh, you know, Germany and the smaller markets in, you know, uh, Switzerland and uh, Croatia are having like four or five clay tournaments. I think it's 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 OK because, you know, players are trying to make a living. There's always imbalance of hard versus clay. A lot of people still believe there's less clay, even though I think clay has a decent window. So from the player's perspective, uh, so if I'm understanding you correctly, it's more Fanini doing it because he's a contender. But you are OK with uh say someone who's in top 20, but his ascendance is pretty much not going more than top 20. Is that where are we going with this? I, I think that's a fair point to make. And I would I would add this further distinction. You know, if, if Fanini wants to load up on clay, which, you know, is not entirely unreasonable, if you're, if you're going to load up on clay, and, and more specifically, if you're going to load up on clay outside the sweet spot of the clay season, which of course is Monte Carlo, Madrid, Rome, from mid-April through late May, heading up to Roland Garros. If you're gonna load up on clay in a non-traditional clay part of the season, it should be February in South America. Uh, because you know, Wim after Wimbledon, most of the tour has accumulated a lot of miles, you know, heading into the back end of the tennis season you know, most of the top players after Wimbledon will, will generally take that time to rest and recharge. Um, it, you know, a big reason why um, the U.S. Open is such a tough tournament to win is because players are so tired at that part of the season. And that's why post-Wimbledon rest, for most people, uh, is so important. So the February South American swing is where Fanini or a similarly talented and credentialed clay player, you know, who has the high end game with the capacity, you know, to contend for major titles. If he could put the pieces together, February is really where Fanini should try to make his extra point haul on clay. Summer after Wimbledon doesn't seem to serve nearly as many interests and feed into nearly as many advantages so i yeah, so that so, that is a relevant point so, for fanini so you're going to reconsider some love for fanini because you know you wrote about him you won his best tournament of this year in monte carlo turned an absolutely dismal season into you know somewhat of a successful season so maybe uh are you going to give him some you know some consideration because maybe 
his agent and you know this is his highest stock maybe he landed some lucrative appearance fee with these events and you know the window of of a player like Fanini to make these kind of lucrative deals is a little smaller than what Andy Murray or Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal command when they play Dubai or these smaller tournaments so maybe there are financial gains that sometimes folks like you and I in the objective world don't see and that and that is huge because what what's the word Federer and Nadal still and Federer especially still draws the highest you know appearance fees of any tournaments well, so here's my response to that, Sakib, and it, and, it, and it is a perfectly legitimate and well-articulated response from you. But my response would be, if Fanini can make a U.S. Open quarterfinal or semifinal, he would get a very large sum of money. So, you know, there, there, it's true that you, you try to bank money and make the most of your professional career when and where you can, and it is a dollars and cents business. You are trying to make money. At every turn, that's certainly something to be respected. But where is the money most prevalent in tennis? The ATP finals would be one aspect of that. I mean, that that has become a money grab, and it's going to get even more uh, lucrative in future years, as it also will for the WTA in Shenzhen. Um, at the at the year-end championships and at the majors, the money is, you know, uh, it, one could say obscenely large in tennis. So if you're really trying to maximize your money, you're going to try to be at your best at major tournaments and you're going to try to put yourself in position to make the ATP finals. So let's let's recall where we were last year that Fanini did grab a bunch of points right after Wimbledon, but we had this DM uh thread in our Accent Tennis uh, uh Twitter bunker I remember it very distinctly. I said, okay, you know, Fanini uh, collected all these fat point totals right after Wimbledon, you know, when he has historically done really well. This has been the best part of the calendar throughout his career. On, you know, if, if anything, if there's any time of year when Fanini has played consistently well, it's the three weeks after Wimbledon. But I said, okay, now what's next? Is he going to do anything at the Masters in North America? Is he going to do anything at the U.S. Open? And he did not. And he did not make the ATP finals. So he certainly has a chance once again to crack London. Um, but will, you know, the, really the Masters in uh, Ohio and before that in Canada and then the U.S. Open, um, that's going to tell the tale. And if he, he stumbles at those three events, once again, you know, it's going to be hard you know, for me to think that, that there's anything about my critique of him which needs to be uh, adjusted. No, I think, uh, again, uh, we don't do this often here because you know, these uh, podcasts are not scripted, but I think not in a strong disagreement, but I think I'll still hold where my opinion is. And I would say not in defense of Fonini. I think he's the kind of a guy, not that I understand him. I mean, I've only interviewed him once in person and you know, he had this very nervous energy. He was walking around while I was just walking with my microphone behind him in the players area in uh, Miami. I think he's kind of a guy, like a lot of these Europeans that you talk about, Petro Kvitova weather-wise, I think he's a very moody guy. I think Clay is his preferred surface and maybe he plays his best tennis in Europe. And uh, maybe that's what the comfort zone is. He wants to get to the year in cha championship if he can with his own mindset. And just again, a counter argument, like we don't hold against a struggling Gulbis or Leonardo Meyer or Federico Delbonis to play those events. Someone eventually has to win those events. So maybe when Fabio entered those events, he was not really you know, thinking of making a move to London. So, you know, you can't hold him for entering if he's not seriously taking his chance in the hard courts. And if someone does rack up 750 points, 
then the argument is there because somebody had to win those events. So I'm not saying Atlanta or any 250 in Europe is less, but I think my point still remains. Uh, I think two realities can coexist. Two points can be, you know, both valid. That's what I'm looking at this. But anyone who's listening, uh, we would love to hear from what me and Matt are talking about. Be, you know, drop a line on Twitter. I still think it's okay as long as he's not missing a Masters 1000. And to your point, I think in 2015, didn't Fonini win like a Hamburg event or read the final and then took out Rafa Nadal at the US Open? Yeah, he's definitely not a David Ferrer. Uh, you know, we'll be lucky if he, you know, in terms of tennis, if he can light it up in the fall and be an outside contender uh, for the year in championships. The good chance uh, he's fizzled out. That's his style of play. There's peaks and valleys. He would be a great asset if he stays around the top 10. His shot making is phenomenal. His personality is a little vibrant than others, a little controversial, uh, you know, somewhat a mini box office. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I see your points. I think they are valid. But my only disagreement is we can't hold it against him because he won. Had he lost, then we wouldn't be even talking about it. Oh, now that that's very fair to say. And I, I should reiterate in, in all of this, that disagreements are good. Disagreements are how competing worldviews, you know, people can see the fuller contours of a conversation. And uh, no one disagrees with me more politely than you do. So, you know, if, if we if we can have these kind of disagreements all the time, I would not mind because people, I, I think, who listen to this show are getting a fuller sense of all the different mindsets and lines of argumentation that go into why one would support uh, a certain decision and one would oppose a certain decision. So, you know, it, 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 this has provided a fuller context. And I think providing a fuller context is what uh, the Tennis with an Accent podcast is supposed to be all about. Yeah. And like I said, you know, if you feel like dropping a line in, you know, in the in the support statement for what Matt said, or if you disagree with what I said, I think this could be fun and just drop a line and, you know, we can take this forward. And I enjoyed talking about this today because uh, I think this is relevant. And uh, like, I mean, I don't like to disagree just for the sake of disagreeing, but I think today there were enough, you know, enough of a reason for me to present my point. And I think, Matt, you handled very objectively. So yeah, uh, thanks everyone for listening to the show as usual. We'll be back with another episode next week. Uh, Sakeb and Matt, it's uh, Tennis with an Accent saying bye for now. Yeah.